how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re- I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome back to the show. We're celebrating a very big episode with our 500th episode. Thank you all so much for listening. As a special celebration, I've included some of the best clips from the past 500 episodes. I'm also releasing a never-before-heard episode with William Monaghan, the Oscar-winning screenwriter for The Departed. He's also got credits for Body of Lies, Loaded Boulevard, Kingdom of Heaven, The Gambler, and Mojave. But to get us started, here's Aaron Sorkin on the difference in character and real people, followed by Taylor Sheridan on his writing process, Dina Sud on finding the story's image, Judd Apatow on risk and comedy, Kenya Barris on choosing your lane, and Whitney Cummings then on rest and recovery, of course, followed by the interview with William Monaghan. If it's your first time here, make sure to hit that subscribe button. You can also go to SoundCloud or Spotify or Apple to listen to more episodes and search for these past episodes to listen to some of these great, iconic screenwriters and directors in the industry. Thanks again for listening. Here's our special 500th episode. The characteristics of characters and the characteristics of people have almost nothing to do with each other. Almost nothing to do with each other. Okay? Um, people don't speak in dialogue. Their lives don't play themselves out in a series of scenes that form a narrative arc. Uh, a, a character, uh, let, let's just assume it's, it's your protagonist, uh, okay, is defined by what they want, uh, uh, by their intention. I talk a lot about intention and obstacle. In, in the master class. They are defined by what they want. You don't tell the audience who a character is. You show the audience what a character wants. Uh, uh, and then there is a formidable obstacle. So you have a character who wants the girl. They want the money. They want to get to Philadelphia. It doesn't matter. But they've got to want it or need it really badly. And there's a formidable obstacle, something very difficult uh, to overcome the tactic that that character uses to overcome the obstacle is what's going to uh, define that character for the audience. It's what your story is going to be about. <laughs> Excuse me. It's what people are going to be watching. But uh, you know, when it, when people look at something, when an audience. When someone looks at something and says, you know, gee, well, people don't talk like that, or people don't really do that, uh, that's the absolute truth. People don't talk like that. People really don't do that. Um, uh, that's what movies, television, and theater are for. Uh, they're much heightened versions of ourselves, and like I said, have, have very little to do with, uh, uh, with, with people. Um, uh, Jackie Mason, who I, I don't recommend, is a great mentor when it comes to screenwriting, perhaps a great mentor when it comes to being funny. Um, uh, he says it this way. Most people in their life eat a lot of soup. You know, 
we all eat a lot of soup. Um, but you hardly ever see someone eating a bowl of soup <laughs> in, in a movie. Um, uh, yes, it, it just isn't a good look. It doesn't read well. That was, of course, Aaron Sorkin from episode one, talking about the differences in the character and real people. We also touched on this briefly in a recent episode with Amy Sherman Palladino, writer of Gilmore Girls and The Marvelous Miss Maisel, back in episode 498. Now here's the great Taylor Sheridan on why he doesn't want a wasted word. Well, I, it's like I don't, I don't want a wasted word. I, I, um, I don't outline. Um, I, I, so I like to go on the journey, um, and uh, you know my 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 writing style is to not have to rewrite. I kind of rewrite as I write. So if I was to sit down and write the first five pages of a uh, of a new screenplay, let's say, well, the next day I start at page one, I start reading through it, and, and I may spend three days refining those five pages, and you end up completely changing, and you end up being distilled down to two and it kind of accordions out like that. And the funny thing is by, oh, it always seems to happen just a little bit past the midway point of the second act if it's a three-act structure that, that it, it starts to really write itself, you know, and the tone mm-hmm. is so clear. A lot of times the tone will become so clear you have to go back and and refine what you've already done that led to it. Um, so that's, that's, that's my process. Mm-hmm. What do you find to be the most difficult step in the writing process? It's that bridge. It's that it's that middle of the second act because that's when any mistake you made early on in the first act or anywhere else, that's where they pop their heads, you know. And so, you know, if you hit that wall of logic or or, or you know, the emotional journey of the of the character, you know starts to feel like it's wavering, the problem isn't there, the problem's 30 pages back. And mm-hmm. and, um, and for me, that's it happens with every screenplay. Like, that's the spot. And you can either, you know, try to write around it, um, or, or you have to, you know, kind of gut check and really lose up and, and, and go back and kill something you probably really liked. Um, that seems to be what I always have to do. Someday I'll assemble all the what I think are some of the best scenes I've ever written, none of which seem to make it into the the, the final drafts of the of the script. And I'm just gonna piece them together and it'll look like an almond film or a, a mess or something. That was Taylor Sheridan on his writing process. Now here's Vina Sud, writer of The Killing in Seven Seconds. When I was trying to when I was thinking of the killing and I was trying to imagine Sarah Linden um the way I connect and the only way I can actually start telling the story is um, I have to actually, there's, I call it my, my, my image. Like I have to actually see it. Like there has to be, there's always this one um, turning point image that I see for the lead character that then is my um, aha into the world and into how to tell the story. So when I was thinking of Sarah, I was up in the Marine Headlands, which is near San Francisco, and it's a bunch of sea cliffs and a very lonely part of the city, outside the city, actually. And I was walking through on this walking, in this, on this hiking path alone, and the fog had moved in. So I was, I couldn't see past like a foot in front of me and I was walking and thinking about this character and I realized 
this is what she does. She goes into the most terrifying, lonely places. She she is a hiker. She's a trail runner. She runs in on trails like I'm walking, um, and 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 she does that in her daily life because she has to do that in her work life. She has to go alone, but she does in the beginning of the pilot to this dark and lonely and terrifying place to find what she thinks is the body of, of a young woman. Um, and so that is part and parcel of, of who she is and how she has to be to do her job effectively. So, so these are different stories. I mean, they're all kind of mysteries around murder, but sometimes we know who the killer is. Sometimes we don't. Do you, do you also do the same thing when you're characterizing the killer? Do you kind of get in their head as well? Absolutely. Whoever has committed a crime, I try uh, to to try to understand um, because I think we all do bad things and we all have reasons for why we do them. And so understanding the reasoning, I think, helps uh, not only understand the humanity of the person who committed the act, but how the act actually physically happens. So, you know, for example, the person... Um, you know, killed Rosie Larson. One thing we talked a lot about in the writer's room is how do you dump a body in the middle of a lake? Like physically, how do you do that? And, 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 and by virtue of trying to physically just understand and then what would be happening emotionally as that event happened, you know, for the killer, then you understand what's the trail that the homicide detective can follow because there's always a human being behind any act. And if you can try to understand that you can, you can then look at bus schedules, then you can look at, did the person break down at one point and vomit in the bushes? Um, you know, we don't think when we're in panic. So you touch something, you know, that without a gloved hand, maybe. Um, so all these things kind of go into the mix of, you know, understanding how things happen. And then, you know, with, seven seconds, clearly we know as audience who the bad guy is at the beginning, who committed the crime. And we have to, you know, by virtue of how the story is constructed, spend time with Peter Jablonski, spend time with, you know, D'Angelo, spend time with all the other cops who are part of the cover-up and see them go through what is essentially the telltale heart. You know, see these men slowly either compartmentalize and not think about it, justify, you know, and, and grow more hateful, you know, of the community they serve and or go insane because they can't deal with the thing that they did. That was, of course, Vina Sud discussing the killing. Now here is the iconic funny man, writer-director Judd Apatow talking about risk and comedy. I, I think that they're all risks because comedy is such an experiment. You just never know if anything's going to work. Mm-hmm. Like, would someone watch a movie about a 40-year-old virgin? Is that the worst idea you've ever heard in your life? And Steve and I said, well, maybe if we just make it totally credible mm-hmm. and it's not some, like, angry, weird guy. It's just a normal, sweet guy. And it got past him. But you don't know if it's going to work. You don't know how to make it satisfying. And slowly you think, oh, well, maybe it's really about relationships and maybe it's about this guy is worried about sex, but really he has to figure out how to have a relationship with Catherine Keener. That's way more complicated than just sex. And, you know, Gary Shanley would help us. And he always says, well, it's about love. It's about that all his friends are trying to have sex, but he finds love 
And, right. and each time out, you don't know if it's going to work. You know if Knocked Up's going to work. There's been a zillion movies about getting somebody pregnant and what happens. There's no safety in the fact that the last one worked. Each one is completely terrifying. There have been times where I thought, oh, this is the this is different. I'm doing something different here. With The King of Staten Island, I thought, I like to be even more credible and even more grounded. I like to take my foot off the comedy gas a little bit more and be more character driven than I've been. But then on the bubble, I thought I want to go, you know, kind of a weird combo of like Mel Brooks and <laughs> Tropic Thunder, just do something that's bonkers, right. satirical and like, a, you know, like a, the kind of movie I wish was on TV when I'm sitting in bed, like this is for right. Netflix. What do I wish was on there? Right. And I knew that that was like a weird swing to just go, Oh, this is this horrifying time in human history. Can you be funny about it? Can you talk to people about isolation and all the, the weird feelings we have when we're forced to sit in this purgatory and consider our lives? And maybe if you do it through weird actors and actresses trying to make a dinosaur action movie, you can satirize this crazy period. So there are moments where you know, like, wow, we haven't done this one, but hopefully you're doing that almost every time out. That was Judd Apatow. Now staying within the comedy realm, here is Kenya Barris talking about his shows Blackish and Black AF. I tried to get desperately, I tried to get the 1619 series from The New Yorker, for New York Magazine, New York Times. It was on slavery. It was the most in-depth, you know, and I wanted to get that. It was all about slavery. I was like, this would be, this is my avatar. You know what I'm saying? I will spend the rest of my life because this is the Marvel Universe of storytelling. So I think when people say, like, you know, it's rehashing Blackish, I'm like, yeah, I'm telling my story again. Most writers, if you look at Aaron Sorkin, you look at, you like, people tell their stories. Woody Allen has, you know, for whatever we say, good or not, good or bad. I mean, the guy's fucking creatively a genius. It's the same story, basically, told over again. So I felt like it was important for me because the idea of what it is to be black in America cannot be summed up in an episode, in a season, in, or even in a series. I feel like it's a lot of stories to mine from that. And like, I got criticism for it, but one of the things, like Juneteenth, people are like, he, just, he did a Juneteenth episode. And I'm like, yeah, and I would do another one because it's really important that people understand that this is an important day beyond what you might think. And I would, if I did another show, I'd want to do another one. Cause I, that's one of my bucket list things. I want people to sort of look up and say like, this is a national holiday that we, for all of us, black, white, or, you know, whoever it's an American holiday. So I think things like that sometimes are missed because they feel like an easy low hanging fruit shot to take. But I really think when you sort of look beyond it and understand, I could do a million different things. I'm not crazy. I choose to do these things because these are the, this is the lane I really know well. I know you've said in the past um, that you know writing is therapeutic for you. What are some of the logistics of your process? Do you like journal? Do you you know kind of keep ideas somewhere, or is it more about conversations in the writer's room? I think it's a combination of the both. Both. I mean, I think a lot of people's iPhones have become our journals. And I'll, I'll read you something off my just write down crazy moments, you know, that I'm sort of going through. And um, um, divorce, I mean, mar- getting married is like buying a car that the car salesman tells you when you're buying the car. Half of these blow up and will scar your whole body. But 
but you're but it's a really nice car and you still buying it and you still buying the car but not just buying the car inviting all your friends and family to watch you buy the car <laughs> knowing that there is a 52% chance that this is going to blow up and destroy your face and people are still around the world are doing it every day and so I guess so I to say I write down little things and they become sort of concepts in my head. I also sort of really believe in a really lively writer's room. And I don't like to talk about story. You know, I like to just talk. And, the, and you find the story through conversation. I have an area or worlds that I'm interested in, and I kind of just like to get the writers talking around that world, around their experiences. And I don't even let them necessarily know that we're talking about that story. And then it starts to form itself. And I think to me that's the best way to, to sort of build story. That was Kenya Barris, and now here's comedian Whitney Cummings talking about her film, The Female Brain. You know, I'm really pretty obsessive about brain rest, um, and I used to work 16, 17-hour days, and you get half as much done, and it's, the quality's not as good. So I finally, after, like, you know, you brought Tim Ferriss, and I was just, all this research is coming out of how much more productive we can be if we work small spurts of time. So... I really try to wake up early in the morning before I do anything that demands my energy. I try to write for like two or three hours and that really helps me. Um, really, really helps me to just try to bang out as much as I can. Cause if I start talking on the phone or go to the gym or do something else, my, I just get too tired. Um, so small spurts of energy are, are key for me. And then another thing I do, which I don't know if this is helpful, but I work this is, might sound like it's um, hypocritical based on what I just said, but I work when I'm not working. Like if I'm sitting in traffic, I always have like a um, recorder or like the voice memo on my phone and I'll speak into my phone. Um, so, you know, Michael Patrick King gave me very good advice. He was like, you don't just work when you're in front of a computer, you know, when you're walking around, when you're doing your laundry, when, you know, like sometimes that's actually when I, think of the best ideas because I'm not putting so much pressure on myself. So I definitely work a lot, but sometimes it doesn't look the way we think work is supposed to look. That was Whitney Cummings to conclude our clips show and highlight the last 500 episodes. If it's your first time here, make sure to hit that subscribe button. Uh, you can also go to SoundCloud or Apple, Spotify, search for your favorite episodes, look for any of these if you want to go back and listen to them in their full length. And now here is that never before heard episode with the Oscar winning writer William Monahan. He wrote The Departed, Body of Lies, Lennon Boulevard, Kingdom of Heaven, The Gambler, and Mojave. He talks to me about writing 2,000 words before coffee every morning. Here's my conversation with William Monahan. Well, I originally wanted to uh, wanted to uh, be a screenwriter uh, from the minute I learned that movies were written. Um, I think the uh, the uh, I was watching a movie and all of a sudden it occurred to me, wait a minute, somebody wrote that. You know, when I was very very young, and then. Uh, since I had the good fortune to uh, grow up in a house with a lot of books, I went hunting around until I found a screenplay that I could read, an example of a screenplay. And it happened to be uh, Dylan Thomas's The Doctor and the Devils. So I read that, and, uh, you know, it, it's uh, complete in itself as a uh, literary work. 
as well as a shooting document. Um, so I never thought from the uh, earliest days that uh, screenwriting was separate from literature. So several of your films that you've written, uh, The Departed, Body of Lies, and now Mojave, involve two opposing forces, generally like two men in a feud or chase, where the you know the good guy and the bad guy line is interchangeable. Where do you get the inspiration for these types of characters, and does one trait often oppose the other when mapping out a character, or does the story kind of reveal these traits? Well, the story kind of reveals it. You know, the, to, to take the other view would make it a something more mechanical than it actually is when it's actually it's actually intuitive um, you know uh, and I, I I don't know you know those are three the, those are three very different uh, pictures um, mm-hmm. but I I'd have, I'd have to take your word for it that there are similarities <laughs> I suppose there are okay um, where did you get where did you get the inspiration for the film Mojave? Uh, it, it was actually it was uh, I, I was out in Los Angeles uh, be, before The Departed, but I was already firmly established as a screenwriter, and um, I, I was uh, feeling a little uneasy about the transformation. <laughs> you know, I mean, all of a sudden. You know, it was it was like I appeared to be at the top of screenwriting, and this is before I won an Oscar, right? Right. So you start to, you know, have a little bit of an existential crisis about that sort of thing, and um, you know, or at least I do, um, because I'm from Boston and have the uh, have the uh, advantage of being both Irish Catholic and Puritan, <laughs> so you know. Uh, you know, I question everything and see through most of it, and I, I just uh, suddenly had to uh, get out of Los Angeles, and so I, I drove out into the desert, and, and uh, you know, uh, and I, w- I was out there sitting at uh, a fire all by myself in the middle of nowhere, and I thought, okay, what if somebody walks into the camp? Right. And... Uh, you know, after, and now, now it's all this. You know, so it's all, it's all fiction, obviously. But it, it did, you know, the original uh, throb, as uh, Nabokov used to say about the inception of anything, uh, it was from that moment of just being out by myself in the desert. So what's it been like? Uh, you've kind of made the shift to director with um, you know, this film in London Boulevard. What, how has that changed things? Do you write differently? Do you see things differently? Or how has it changed your perspective no. on the film? Uh, it, do, it doesn't change anything. You know, I, I, I write as if I'm uh, describing a uh, film I'm seeing in my head anyway. Mm-hmm. I've always been highly visual. And, uh, you know, if there's, if there's any argument to... Uh, why I've been successful, it's probably that I'm visual. And uh, if you read one of my screenplays, you can kind of see a movie, if not the movie. And uh, that's kind of why people, I think, have uh, signed on to them, and they've been uh, they've been made. You know, I, I never viewed it. Uh, you know, like when I referred to earlier in response to your question about when did I 
start wanting to do it. I mean, that first uh, screenplay I ever read uh, by Dylan Thomas was a highly visual visual document, and um, you know the the visualization was inseparable from anything else, any other element in it, and uh, it was just a whole work that was. you know, compellingly visual and, and, and uh, you know, worked as rhythmic literature as well. So it was a whole piece of work, and visuality was part of it. And you can't, uh, sometimes people think of screenwriting as, you know, you're just doing some sort of, uh, you know, some uh, budgeting sled with dialogue that somebody else is going to visualize. And sometimes that's really the case, but you you do uh, kick the project a little further ahead um, if you're not uh, leaving visualization for everybody else, because visualization is part of the whole experience of reading a script. And uh, sometimes in my situation, because in, in some of my in some of my work it can be a little verbal. There's a tendency to always think that a person can only do one thing. So if something is very verbal, if there's a lot of dialogue, well, obviously there must be some some sort of, uh, you know, you can't be doing everything, right? So, uh, but if, if you if you if you read my uh, screenplays, you'll see that they're highly visual, and uh, that's how I got into all this because being visual in a screenplay is part of the whole thing. Um, when you're past the research and like conception phases, what kind of time frame are you actually writing? Like how what length of time, and what's your writing rituals like as well? I don't know. It depends because when the screenwriting thing happened, uh, I started to have have to write in hotels and uh, go around to locations and things like that. And that's a, that's all been kind of good because it gets you out of your shell. Mm-hmm. Um, and um you know in uh, some other way available to writers other than just going out and have a fist fight after you've done your 8 hours <laughs> right uh, so when it, when i was in, i've always been a, a an all day writer you know all day all night i'll wake up and sometimes i do 2000 words before i even make coffee right because i i, I get somewhat obsessed with it and um you know, I still do that. I mean, I even I even write when I'm directing. I've done it twice. Um, I may be wrong here. I remember, I remember when I saw The Departed and when it came out, it seems like you just had a ton of movies like bought at the same time. Did you already have all these movies written, or did you write them? Like, were they written before that? You know, you got so big, or were you just working on them all the time? Well, you got to remember, I was pretty big before The Departed, right? You know, because I, I'd uh, I'd uh, I'd come in Ridley Scott was going to do Tripoli and uh then I got Kingdom of Heaven and right. there were there were many other projects uh-huh. uh that hit because I you know I came in pretty pretty heavy at at the beginning of that and, and uh you know I was well embarked before the departed uh, What was kind of your first film and what led what led to all that success I know you had a background in journalism well, I, like I said, I started off wanting to be a, a filmmaker, and uh, then I ended up, um, you know, realizing that uh, the 
the writing had to be given its due. Uh, so, you know, I was a, I was a literary writer. I, I won, uh, you know, Pushcart Prize for short fiction and stuff like that. And I was also a, a rather iconoclastic essayist in New York. And, uh, and that one thing led to another, so I became an editor, you know. Right. So I was an editor in New York. I was, you know, I started out doing book reviews and comic pieces in New York, and I didn't really want to work in journalism really you know because i knew i was a novelist and a uh a dramatist with uh you know screen drama probably in front of me too um but when you're working in something as I'm, as i'm sure you know you become competitive in it you know right it's like there you are in manhattan as a journalist right and um all of a sudden you you've become famous a little bit as a journalist in manhattan and right. it might in those pre-internet days, have been only in Manhattan. But saying someone is famous only in Manhattan is a little like saying they were only famous in Imperial Rome, you know, <laughs> right. Or, right. or 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 Tudor England or something like that, or Renaissance right. Florence. You know, you're in New York. Everybody knows who you are, and you know you you end up in page six for going to a uh, party. Right for God's sakes, you know, and so you're down there doing that, and even in something you don't intend to pursue, you become uh, you become ambitious in it. Right. And so I think I think I lost a good deal of time um, uh, before I I realized that I, I didn't want to uh, be uh, an iconoclastic essayist and editor and. Uh, you know, it's sort of a been there, done that thing. And the, what happened to me is that Spy Magazine failed, mm-hmm. uh, which is the best thing that ever happened to me. So I went, I went back up to uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, to uh, get cracking on fiction again. Right. And uh, then I had a, I had a, I had a book. Uh, my novel Lighthouse was uh, bought uh, by Penguin Putnam and uh, Gore Verbinski. Um, uh, purchased the screen rights and hired me to do the screenplay. Uh-huh. And uh, you know that's that's how all this started. Gotcha. You know, and there was there was a bit of a surprise at the time. It's kind of like, well, you know, can this guy do screenwriting? <laughs> right. And you know, you know, coming from his background as a journalist and novelist, you know, that sort of thing. The usual question, which you in fact have repeated, but the fact is, the answer was yes. <laughs> because I already had, I already had Tripoli in a drawer, you right? Know? Uh, Tripoli was done already, and uh, I wrote it when I was twenty nine. Mm-hmm. So uh, and uh, you know I rewrote it obviously, but that was the uh, the screenplay that ended up making my career. Um, what do you What do you find to be the most difficult step in the writing process? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's like uh, I I I would sometimes when you get asked questions like this, you want to invent some sort of difficulties, you know, <laughs> right. um, just to you know invent some sort of difficulties, just to be a regular guy about it or something. And oh yes, yeah. I have, I you know, I chew pencils. I have to uh, you know right. go right. for a long walk. Oh, I've got this terrible block, you know. Uh-huh. And it's it's like and no, I mean if you're if you're a writer you just write, 
you know, like like ducks swim, you know, and uh, and uh, you know it's it's and the the other thing is it's pleasurable or you or you don't do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I mean it's it's a it's a it's a very uh it's a very pleasurable thing for me to uh to write and it it's never stopped being pleasurable. Um you know, as long as it's autonomous. Uh-huh. You know. You write every day? Yeah. Every day? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I always have. Um in your opinion, what makes a good story? If it's well conducted as the story that it is, you know, a story can be anything as long as it's well done. There's not one type of story that's any good. You can have a, uh, you know, uh, you know, you could have some sort of uh, great story that happens to be an action adventure thing. You have a great story that's kind of a Conrad thing with elements of, uh, you know, adventure. And um, or you could have a, a, a story about you know a, a 67 year old woman working at a post office in Holland, you know, and her relationship with her parrot or something like that, and that can be a good story too. It's just it's just a matter of how it's managed, and mm-hmm. um, you know that's that's uh, uh, something that people forget too often. Right. In in the arts, you know, in in movies, when people try to put together movies algorithmically mm-hmm. or tailoring them uh, by genre to certain markets and stuff like that, they always get it wrong. You know, they always get it wrong. I mean, right. you know, and sometimes movies get trimmed in post production in order to be uh, reverse engineered into a genre product they never were. Right. Right. And so that that's that's terrible terrible groupthink which drives the product itself away from where it should be which is just an individual uh piece of work. Right. Uh which is itself alone and operates on its own rules, its own terms for its own effect. Um go, going back to Mojave, you mentioned where you got the original idea. So, I mean, if this is a, a fictional piece, did you have a lot of rewrites? Did the story take different turns than you imagined? How did you originally plot out this story? No, I mean, it just, uh, it was kind of like a, uh, you know, like anything else, it's it's intuitional. You know, mm-hmm. you just start and all of a sudden you have it. You know, there's there's no process that I can really describe it except you sit down and do it and, you know, something occurs to you when you follow that. And if it works, it's in. If it's if it doesn't work, it's out. But uh, Mojave threw itself together very very quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, again, you know, originally, like most films, it was uh, 120 pages when mm-hmm. it went to the shooting floor. So uh, and then you know, like most independent films, it's coming out at 90 minutes. You know, each each page. Of a script is a is a minute of screen to, screen time, right? As you know, so you know you get a uh, uh, you know Mojave originally was uh, uh, you know uh, longer, okay, and uh, and um, you know uh, yeah, all right, yeah. I don't want to go into that too much. Did you write um, 
these characters, I mean, I guess as you work on like 10 years, these characters have, or these actors have kind of emerged. Did you write for specific actors with this film? Uh, no, no, I didn't. Uh, you know, I just, uh, I, I don't find that actors ever want you to do that. And uh, what they're what they're interested in, uh, like any of us, is something something new. It, because you you just want them to uh, see the part, uh, find it original, and then make it their own. What kind of advice do you wish you had when you were 29, when you were first starting out as a screenwriter? Well, I wish somebody had told me that I could have sold the script then and there. Um, <laughs> but but uh, and that I'd completely take over screenwriting. <laughs> 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 I wish somebody had told me that that I, you know I, that I didn't have to put it in the drawer with the four other scripts I'd been working on. Um, you know, I, I didn't know that uh, you know if I just uh, popped into the car or got it read um, that that I would have started earlier. But I, I think that I started at exactly the right time. Okay. You know, and uh, it, it wasn't as if you know I was uh, I was out there as a novelist and. Uh, you know, a, a, a publishing writer. So, um, with people chasing me for novels since I was like 22 years old, so it wasn't like I was. Uh, I lacked things to do. I, I think right. I essentially got to screenwriting at about the right time for it. Is there anything else you'd like to share about the film or any upcoming projects you have coming out? Well, right now, you know, I mentioned novels. I'm I'm uh, working on a uh, novel. Uh, right now, in my part time and on weekends, and um, because I can't leave that laying on the ground forever, you know, I'm 55 years right. old. There are things I have to do in that form, and um, I'm going to do them. But uh, I have I have another directorial project that I'm thinking about, and I'm continuing my uh, screenwriting as usual. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.